Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Has liberalism failed? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. First of all, liberalism is a big word with a lot of definitions. Here, I'm not talking about liberalism as the opposite of conservatism. That's American-specific. I'm talking about a broader political culture one that privileges the rights of the individual and exists primarily to protect the individual from the state. So back to the opening question. Has liberalism, in this sense, failed? It's a hard question to answer, I know. But if anyone is up for it, it's Francis Fukuyama. Fukuyama is one of the most influential political thinkers of the last several decades. His famous 1992 book, the End of History and The Last Man arrived on the scene just as the Cold War was ending. Fukuyama's central claim was that liberal democracy, like the kind that America embodied, had won the war of ideas and established itself as the ideal political system. Not every society around the world was a liberal democracy, but what Fukuyama meant by declaring it the end of history was that it was only a matter of time. And this claim made a huge splash, especially with those in the Bush administration who hoped to spread democracy around the world to places like Iraq. Now, 30 years later, Fukuyama's written a new book called Liberalism and Its Discontents. And to be honest, I'm still not quite sure what to make of it. It's both a defense of liberalism and a critique of it. It does a great job of cataloging the problems with liberalism, but it also argues that liberalism is still the best option there is. And though Fukuyama writes about some very current challenges, like the American right's move toward authoritarianism and the resurgence of nationalism around the world, it's still not clear. Does he think liberal democracy won the war of ideas? I invited him onto the show to talk about it. We discussed the promise of liberalism, whether it failed or not, and if he was wrong about history being over 30 years ago. Francis Fukuyama, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I am very curious why you felt the need to write this book now. Do you sense that we're in a real political crisis? Well, I think we're in a big political crisis. I think that if you look around the world, liberal democracy has been in decline pretty steadily for the last 16 years. And it's not small countries that are involved in this decline. It's countries like the United States, like India, the world's two largest democracies. And you've seen a lot of new great powers rising, like Russia and China, that are overtly anti-liberal and anti-democratic. 
And so I think there have been a lot of stresses on democracy, and particularly the liberal part of liberal democracy in recent years. I would say, in fact, in the United States, it's a real crisis situation that could lead to a very severe constitutional confrontation in 2024. Well, let me just ask you now, since you just said the liberal part of democracy, because I find that liberalism and democracy are often conflated, I think mistakenly. And this is a mistake you do not make in the book. So when you say that, the liberal part of democracy, what are you talking about? Well, the democratic part of liberal democracy has to do with institutions like free and fair multi-party elections to gauge popular will. The liberal part really has to do with constraints on the power of the state through a rule of law, through constitutional checks and balances that make sure that even though a leader is democratically elected and legitimate, that that person isn't able to do simply whatever he or she wants in terms of violating the individual rights of people, in terms of violating legislative will, the courts, and the like. So it's really this legal constraint on power that's at the core of the liberal part of liberal democracy. Before we talk about what's gone wrong with liberalism, which is quite a bit, I do want to ask you about the promise of liberalism. Presumably, you believe it has succeeded for very good reasons. So what is it about liberalism that has made it such a powerful, enduring historical force? Well, I think there's really basically three arguments in favor of a liberal political order. The first one is just a pragmatic one. Liberalism was really designed to enable societies to govern over diversity. It was born in the 17th century after 150 years of almost continuous religious warfare following the Protestant Reformation. And early liberal thinkers simply said, look, we can't agree on the final ends of life, on the good life, so let's just agree to survive and protect life itself by having a regime that allows tolerance of different points of view. And that's been reaffirmed in more recent years when liberalism has been challenged by nationalism, an aggressive nationalism that said you have to be one ethnicity or one culture. And again, liberalism is a way of getting multi-ethnic or diverse nationalities to be able to live in peace. Second reason, I think, is a moral reason that has to do with the core human attribute that liberal societies seek to protect, which is human autonomy, that human beings are individuals that can make moral choices about good and bad, and their ability to do that is really what makes them human beings, and they all want a basic degree of freedom in terms of what life course to select, where they want to live, who they should marry, and the like. And that's what a liberal society protects through a rule of law. And then finally, because among the rights that are protected in a liberal society are the right to own property and to engage in economic transactions, liberalism has always been connected to a market economy and to the prosperity that a market economy brings. And so I think that's been a very powerful argument as liberal societies tend to be the richest societies in the world. So that is liberalism in theory. And what a lovely theory it is. How is liberalism in practice working out? Has it lived up to that enormous promise, both here in the U.S. and abroad? Well, look, there's so many dimensions to liberalism that it's hard to answer that question in any simple way. Yeah. You wouldn't have the modern world if you didn't have liberalism, meaning you wouldn't have rich, developed countries with long lifespans and high degrees of personal wealth and the kind of individual freedom that exists. So in general, it's been of enormous benefit. I think there are many reasons why people don't like liberal societies because they tolerate, for example, a higher degree of economic and social inequality because they are linked to a market economy than, let's say, a socialist or communist society. And because they agree to disagree about the most important ends of life, a lot of conservatives don't like them because they would like to live in a society where everybody believes the same thing in terms of the highest religious values. And liberalism doesn't give them that either. So there are a number of reasons why people are discontented. I would say, in general, 
the promise of liberalism is equal treatment of individuals that are equally worthy of respect for their dignity. And no liberal society ever fully lives up to that. Yeah, you know, and liberalism has plenty of critics on all sides. One of the more interesting criticisms today, which you just alluded to, and part of what makes it interesting to me is that it is one of those places where the left and the right converge in a very weird way. And the criticism is that liberalism has been undone by its excessive individualism. And so the abbreviated version of this is something like individualism may be a virtue, but on a long enough timeline, especially in a consumerist society, it destroys the basis for community. There's no affirmative commitment to a shared way of life. In the book, you call the inability of liberalism to provide a common moral horizon, a feature, not a bug, which I think is correct. Has that flaw, if that's the right word, or that problem reached a kind of tipping point today? Well, I'm not quite sure how you would know that you were at a tipping point. I think that historically, liberal societies have been easily reconciled with all sorts of human community. Every modern developed liberal society has a gigantic, you know, civil society sector in which people can voluntarily come together for common purposes. This extends from families to neighborhoods to labor unions to churches to all sorts of human association. The one thing you don't have is a kind of overarching single religious framework or a single set of rules that everybody in the society has to follow. But certainly, community is completely compatible with liberalism, but it needs to be a kind of community that is voluntarily entered into. I do think that one of the charges of liberalism, because it is connected with private property and individual self-interest, is that it tends to make people excessively worried about their private fortunes and that of their families and takes them out of the public sphere and out of concern for larger issues. This was a criticism that Alexis de Tocqueville was quite concerned about in Democracy in America. Yeah. There is a kind of privatization of concern that happens, and that's true, but I think that poised against that is a very powerful human yeah. inbuilt inclination towards sociability and the need to come together with other people. Yeah, you know, and I consider myself on the political left, but I also consider myself a liberal in this sense, whatever my misgivings may be. But do you think it's possible that conservatives are right that a society without some vision of the common good, whatever that happens to be, that a society without that will unravel? Or maybe that the myth that the state can remain neutral eventually falls apart once a certain level of cultural and moral diversity is reached? Well, I think there are a couple of different answers to that. The first is that liberal societies do have their own culture. For example, if people are not basically tolerant of diverse opinions, a liberal society is not going to work. If they're not public-spirited enough to take care of self-government and, and the things that go with self-government, paying your taxes, voting, paying attention uh, at least enough to public affairs that you can actually vote intelligently, then that kind of society is not going to work. And so there are common things that liberal societies have. The other aspect of this is that actual real existing liberal societies have been built on top of non-liberal foundations in which mm -hmm. you have nations, you have pre-existing cultures that do give people something in common. You know, one of the most important things in most countries is language. You know, if you're German or French or British, you have that common linguistic basis, you have a shared history, you have cultural traditions that are carried forward that give your life uh, a certain thickness that just being a liberal individual doesn't necessarily give you. And, you know, that creates a tension because sometimes those cultural foundations are exclusionary and they can't be entered into equally by everybody in the society, in which case they start being illiberal. And so I think the trick uh, really for a successful liberal society 
is to have enough of a culture that people do have a sense that they are in a common endeavor, that they do share things with their fellow citizens. But, you know, that common shared core has to be tolerant and accessible. Yeah, that's the thing, right? I guess it's a question of whether or not that common moral core is robust or thick enough. You know, like you, you write in the book, and I'll just quote you, you write, at the heart of the liberal project lies the assumption that if you strip away the customs and accumulated cultural baggage that each of us carries, you'll find an underlying moral core that we all share and recognize in one another. It is this mutual recognition that makes democratic deliberation. I want to believe that. I need to believe that. (laughs) On my better days, I do believe that. But that is just an assumption, right? What if it's not true? What if Nietzsche, who you quote in the book, a reference in the book, is right that liberalism ultimately lacks a foundation for that normative claim and that eventually that will become a problem? I think that it's very hard to discuss this in abstract terms. Uh, Yeah, I mean, certainly every society has sociopaths that simply are incorrigible and can't be brought to, you know, observe kind of fundamental human norms. And maybe you can get a whole society that becomes uh, sociopathic. You know, I think some examples of religious extremism or ultranationalism shape people in a fashion like that. But, you know, I do think that there is a sense in which the universalism that underlies liberalism, you know, is very attractive because it at least posits that you can communicate and relate to other people, you know, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their religion, that those are, in some sense, secondary characteristics that are built around this common core. And I think it's worked well enough in enough societies that, you know, it's a decent working assumption. Look, I, I agree. I still believe, even though I'm pretty sympathetic to a lot of the criticisms of liberalism, I still believe it's the best we got, which maybe says more about what we got than liberalism. But yeah, I guess part of what I'm getting at here, and, and something else you say in the book is you talk about how liberalism sought to lower the aspiration of politics, right? And to quote you, not as a means of seeking the good life as defined by religion, but rather as a way of ensuring life itself, that is peace and security. Right. You know, but what if in the end that's not enough for human beings? What if too much peace and security for too long leads to complacency and disenchantment? You know, what if the metaphysical needs that go untouched by liberalism finally lead people, mistakenly, I'd argue, to abandon it? Well, I think we're seeing examples of that in the present-day world, and we've seen them historically, that in many ways, liberalism is the most attractive when it's threatened. So Mm -hmm. if you experience a terrible war like Europe did in the two world wars in the 20th century, or if you live under a terrible dictatorship like those that existed in communist countries, then you're really eager to live in a liberal society. But once you start taking that society for granted, and we've had really 75 years of peace since the end of the Second World War, you start taking that for granted, and then you aspire to other things. And I think there is complacency that has affected a lot of people in peaceful liberal countries, and they want something more than that. They're bored, in a way, with peace and prosperity. This is partly the thesis of your your end of history book and essay, the part of it that was overlooked by lots of people. And you even said recently in an interview with our friend Greg Sargent over at the Washington Post that there's a lot of pent-up idealism and that people like struggling for a just cause. And they haven't had anything other than consumerism and mindless middle-class pursuits in the last 30 years. That's your quote. You know, obviously there are tons of material causes of the current political climate, and we'll get into some of them. But how important to the overall picture right now for you is this boredom or pent-up idealism or, or however you want to put it? Yeah, actually, in the end of history in The Last Man, I had a line where I said something to the effect that if people can't struggle for justice and peace, then they'll struggle against justice and peace because It's a part of human nature that we want to struggle. We want respect for our ideals, for ourselves. And if it's just given to us too freely, you know, we're going to want something else. And that's a source of instability in liberal societies. 
You know, I think that in many respects, a lot of the out-of-control resentments and anger in the United States is a product of people kind of losing sight of the real stakes that are involved and what the absence of liberalism would really mean. That's one sense in which I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine has actually been a useful reminder to people that there are really serious tyrants and autocrats in the world that can do people a lot of harm. I mean, I had an argument with a reasonably well-known conservative intellectual who had gone partly MAGA in recent years and said that we're living in this country, the United States, increasingly under a tyranny. And I said, well, you know, I don't see tyranny around me. It seems to me we're living in one of the freest societies in the world. What do you see as so tyrannical? And you know, he said, well, there's a group of nuns that are forced to distribute contraceptives in their medical practice. And, you know, maybe that was based on a wrongly reasoned court decision. But given the kinds of tyranny that you can actually see being enacted every day you know, around the world, that's not the worst violation of individual rights that I've encountered. So I do think that that's something that you can only begin to believe if you live in a pretty peaceful and secure society. We're going to take a quick break. But when we're back, liberalism is designed to embrace and manage diversity. But has that openness only spawned more divisions? Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. There's also this challenge of plurality and identity. And you also write in the new book, and I'll quote you again, the unanswered question for the future is whether liberal societies can overcome the internal divisions that they themselves have spawned. What started out as an institutional mechanism to govern our diversity has spawned new forms of diversity that threaten those very mechanisms. What are you getting at there? Well... I would say the big fight in most democracies, liberal democracies right now, is actually over liberalism itself, because on both the left and the right, there are people that reject the basic liberal premises of individualism and moral equality uh, of all individuals. I mean, there's left-wing and there's right-wing versions of that. There's also this kind of inflation of small differences that grows over time. I mean, you see this, I think, in the partisan polarization where Americans 20 years ago would disagree over policy issues like immigration or tax rates or gun ownership. But that's 
kind of morphed into what political scientists call effective polarization, meaning you don't just disagree about a policy, you actively hate the other side because you think that they're a threat to your fundamental identity. So right now, I mean, you're in this bizarre situation where being against vaccines is part of a new kind of conservative identity. But where did this come from? I mean, since when did opposition to rigorously tested vaccines become such an important issue that is one of the fundamental causes of the political divide in this country? So that seems to me a phenomenon where the freedom of liberalism has allowed people to generate new divisions among themselves that in some cases are actually spawned by the, the liberalism that they enjoy in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it feels a little bit like Plato's critique of democracy, right? But it just becomes loose and chaotic and people kind of react perversely against that and retreat into, you know, the arms of demagogues or, or into the, um, the certainty of tribalism or whatever the case may be. Yeah, you know, but it's not the first time this has happened. Yeah. This is something that a lot of social psychologists have pointed to, that the groupishness of human behavior is so powerful that there's this famous experiment that was done back in the 1950s where they took a very homogeneous group of boys and told them that they're in two teams and that they needed to compete with each other. And by the end of the week, it was a Lord of the Flies kind of situation where they were really ready to kill one another. And there's a historical example in the Byzantine Empire. The populace was divided into two groups, the blues and the greens, that were basically the colors of two chariot racing teams in the Hippodrome. And it roughly corresponded to a very obscure theological controversy among Christian, Orthodox Christians between monophilites and monophusites. And you don't want to know what that distinction was about because it's such a trivial one, you know, in, in theological terms. I believe it. But there was major riots in Constantinople and the dethroning of emperors over this fight between these two teams. And, you know, so I do think that there is this human tendency to show solidarity to in-groups and to really hate out-groups that, of course, become possible in a liberal society because you can believe and associate with whoever you want. In authoritarian societies, the authoritarian ruler stamps out that kind of discord. In the former Yugoslavia, you had all these little ethnic groups that really fought each other through much of the 20th century. And under the Tito dictatorship, they couldn't do that anymore. And so you had peace. And so there is a problem in liberalism that it does tend to spawn certain kinds of conflicts that perhaps liberalism itself is not capable of mitigating. Is it possible that political communities have just become too large and too pluralistic to cohere around a meaningful shared identity? No, I mean, the size and the diversity are separate issues. I mean, sure. the United States split into two factions prior to the Civil War when there was only like 30 million Americans around. And religiously and ethnically, they were much less diverse than they are today. And yet they fought a civil war over this, really over the issue of slavery. And conversely, it's possible to have large, diverse societies that are run under liberal rules like India up until the rise of Narendra Modi that accommodated substantial degrees of diversity. Generally speaking, for large, diverse countries, you do need to have specific kinds of institutions in order to control violence. And so federalism is one of the adaptations, the delegation to local communities that they can arrange certain important aspects of their lives without that being dictated from the center that are not necessary in smaller homogeneous communities. But yeah, I think that there are many forms of diversity and some forms of diversity liberalism just can't deal with because it runs too deep. And you write in the book about how, I think this is true, that there are better and worse forms of national identity. Some are more inclusive, some are more exclusive. And but I guess I wonder, you know, America... This country doesn't really feel in any meaningful way like a coherent cultural unity. Is a kind of national identity that you think is healthy and viable possible in a country that is this, I was going to say divided, but just this different, this big? 
I thought that we had actually arrived at that point at the end of the civil rights era, where you actually had an American identity that was built around common loyalty to the Constitution and rule of law and basic democratic institutions that was not defined by race, ethnicity, or religion. I mean, that's certainly the kind of America that I felt I was growing up in. And in that respect, we've gone backwards. I'm not sure that that was necessarily inevitable. I think that the rise of populism and the extreme divisions have more proximate causes related to globalization, to the movement of people, to just bad luck and getting really bad leaders at a crucial juncture in our history. So I'm not convinced that it was a necessary outcome, but it's a real question about whether we're going to get through this and kind of reestablish some kind of national identity. Yeah, it is. And who the hell knows? I think so far we've spent a lot of time on on some of these questions of identity and really like metaphysical needs. But I do not want to skip over the more materialist critiques in your book. And I mean, you have a whole chapter in there about neoliberalism and Mm -hmm. the recurring theme of which Mm -hmm. is that, you know, neoliberal ideology or liberalism has been undermined by some of these excesses. And something I kept thinking about while reading that was whether or not neoliberalism is just liberalism fulfilling its own internal logic. You write in that chapter that liberalism properly understood is compatible with a wide range of social protections provided by the state. Mm-hmm. And the words properly understood are doing a lot of work there. And it is true enough, right? But it, it does seem like we have enough evidence or a lot of evidence that suggests that market societies tend towards the concentration of wealth and power. And that leads to political corruption. And that finally undercuts the ability of liberal societies to mitigate their own excesses. Is that account too simplistic for you? No, it's correct. I would agree with that. If it's simply a liberal society, I think that to be successful and sustainable in the long run, you really need to link liberalism with democracy because you need a political mechanism to do a certain degree of redistribution, not to completely equalize, but to mitigate the kinds of inequalities, social and economic inequalities that a market society produces. And that's why I think that the most successful liberal societies actually were the social democratic ones that emerged after World War II, where the elites had this recognition that a lot of the horrors of the early part of the 20th century were due to these class cleavages. And in both Germany and Japan, for example, but other democracies as well, there was a real effort to create a welfare state and to try to be more inclusive in terms of having everybody share in the benefits of economic growth. And I think that's the way that liberal democracy survives. So I think that if you don't couple liberalism with a political order that is more egalitarian, it's not going to survive. I think that's right. But I guess my sense is that in the book, you want to make a distinction between neoliberalism and liberalism. You want to say that neoliberalism is a kind of cancerous outgrowth of liberalism and that it's undermining its progenitor and therefore that liberalism as such isn't the problem. Mm -hmm. But I'm not so sure about that. And again, I'm a liberal. What if neoliberalism is just liberalism fully realized? What if the internal logic of liberalism was always leading to a system in which economic power leads to the corruption of political power and therefore to the perversely unequal, unstable world we have? today? Well, I would just cite historical experience of the last couple of centuries. In the 19th century, you had a very brutal form of liberalism, both in Britain and in the United States, where there was no social protection, there was no welfare state, uh, no effort to redistribute, and it produced societies that were extremely unequal. But that inequality in itself then mobilized the people that were left out of the system to use the opportunities afforded by the democratic features of the system to push back. And so they create labor unions, they create a regulatory state that reigns in some of those excesses. I think that needs to be powered along by (laughs) some nasty experiences. And I think you wouldn't have gotten to that point if it hadn't been for 
you know, for example, the, the First World War was a big spur to the creation of the administrative state because you needed to mobilize the whole country to fight a, a war, which gave the federal government much more power. And then obviously the Great Depression made everybody very cynical about capitalism itself and kind of recognized that you needed social policies that would buffer people against that. And, and that then led to a big expansion of the state and the mitigation of those problems. Something very similar happened in Europe. So yeah, I, I would agree with you that if all you have is liberalism by itself, it may tend towards that goal, but it's not going to be politically sustainable. Because it's not politically sustainable, I think you'll get liberal elites eventually to buy into the need to moderate it. One of the issues that you might raise in reaction to this is the financial crisis in 2008, which was pretty bad and was, I think, the direct outgrowth of these neoliberal policies. And that, you could say, why didn't that then lead a move to the left and a much more redistributive state? And that's a complicated question. I think it should have in many respects. But I think a lot of the anger that had been generated by the crisis was actually captured and diverted by the right into these cultural complaints and therefore never really created the political basis for a kind of progressive comeback. I, I think that's right. And I think that's a, a political tragedy, the, the consequences of which we're, we're going to be dealing with for a very long time. But this does remind me of something I did want to ask you in terms of this broader question about how to save liberalism from itself or from its own excesses. And in the book, you don't quite endorse a Bernie Sanders-style progressive economic agenda, though I, I think you've come close. But unless I'm missing something, that does seem to be exactly the kind of thing our society desperately needs in order to, to course correct. Do you feel that way? Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I, I'm not shying away from any of that. Yeah, I think we need more redistribution. I mean, just to begin with, I think we need some kind of universal healthcare system. And it's kind of a tragedy and kind of outrageous that we're the only developed country, rich country that doesn't have one. There are a lot of other aspects of the Sanders program that I think are not terribly well thought out. And I think that for all of the complaints about fiscal conservatism and austerity, if you don't worry about those sorts of things, you're not going to be able to sustain a progressive redistributive agenda. So you got to be a little bit careful about it. But yeah, I do think that you need to correct some of the inequalities that have been created by this kind of very ruthless capitalism that we've experienced in the last uh, generation or two. Well, can I just ask, I don't want to pass this over, and I also don't want to go down the rabbit hole. I'm not, <laughs> I don't speak for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and I don't want to take a fine-tooth comb through his platform. But what is it about the sorts of policies that he recommends that you think are wrong-headed? What is it that he's missing? Well, I think that if you add up the cost of the programs that he wants to enact, it's going to require a huge increase in taxation. Yeah. Now, I don't buy into the old Laffer curve theories that there's somehow this very sharp linear correlation between tax rates and kind of economic stagnation. But at a certain point, that will kick in. I mean, at a certain point, you know, you're really not going to be able to sustain a very high level of redistribution. And I think that was really the problem, that Sanders' program would have required raising taxes for a lot of people to a point that it really would have started to undercut incentives to inter innovate, start companies, that sort of thing. But in principle, I don't have an objection. And I think that American taxes right now can easily be raised. There are certainly plenty of extremely rich people that manage to avoid paying taxes of any sort. And those are loopholes that ought to be closed and you know, the government ought to take in more money. Yeah, the politics of this is obviously complicated and, and tricky, but given what you're saying and what I'm saying, if we're not able to do it and we're not able to do it effectively and, and quickly, um, we may be in deep trouble here. There's also, I think, a problem that people on the left haven't really confronted that's actually been quite a preoccupation of mine in recent years, which is this question of state capacity, that the American state, although I am very supportive of that state in, in theory, is not very efficient and is subject to a lot of problems because 
we just don't have the kind of bureaucratic and administrative traditions that a lot of other parliamentary democracies have, where you've got pretty high-capacity ministries and well-educated staffs and so forth that are capable of administering kind of complex programs. And I think that unless you actually engaged in a reform of the public sector that would increase its professionalism and capacity, it's going to be hard to add another really big program on top of the ones we have that can actually be implemented. One thing I think we have to say here, and and you say it in the book, while it's true that there are liberal discontents on both sides, and often for different reasons, the threats to the present liberal order are not symmetrical. The Republican Party in this country has rejected the rules of the liberal democratic game explicitly. So where does that leave us in terms of the effort to avoid a real political catastrophe? Well, yeah, that's absolutely right. The clear and present danger to the American constitutional order comes from the right. It comes from Republicans that basically want to try to steal the next election in a way that they tried to steal the 2020 election but didn't get away with it. Part of it is the voter access question, which I think is actually the less serious threat. The more serious one has to do with the way that votes are counted. In fact, Trump said this openly at one point in in the last few weeks, that it's not who gets to vote so much as how you count the votes that matters. And I think that a lot of Republican state legislatures are trying to change the rules so that they're the ones that can determine how many electors are sent to the electoral college to vote for the next president and not having the voters make that decision. And that is a really big threat to American democracy and to our constitutional order. Nothing that's happening on the progressive side, I think, comes close to being that big a threat. We're going to take one last short break. When we come back, I think we need to answer a question we've been dancing around all show. Does Francis Fukuyama think liberalism has failed? Or does he think we've failed liberalism? Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Reading your book and listening to you now, it's never entirely clear to me whether you think liberalism has failed or whether you think we failed liberalism. I suspect it's the latter. Am I wrong about that? Well, look, a lot of this depends on your definition of liberalism. And mine is a fairly expansive one where I can see a version of liberalism that was actually quite successful when combined with other institutions and other features. I do think that there was an effort to push things to extremes on both the right and the left that were not intrinsic to the design of liberalism. So we've talked about this already, that neoliberalism, I believe, is a deformation of classical liberalism in the sense that it takes the ideas of property rights and market transactions and kind of absolutizes them and demonizes the state in an inappropriate way. And similarly, I think there's a version of identity politics that itself then turns into something very illiberal when you begin denying the premise that fundamental under the skin were equal individuals and begin to start to say that it's our group characteristics that are the most essential things about us and that the society ought to be organized around those groups. That, I think, is a clear deformation of 
the liberal principle of the kind of universal human equality. Can I ask, at what point does it cease to be a deformation and simply become an indictment of what it is and what it permits? Well, I suppose if you can't fix it. Yeah. But at that point, you should probably call it something other than liberalism. Actually, I think the neoliberalism part is the easiest to fix, and we're already in the process of doing that. We're way past this Reagan era where markets are going to be the solution to every problem, and the reinjection of the state and economic policy has been pretty clear both in regulation and in fiscal policy. And so already we're walking back a lot of that particular deformation. The deformation on the progressive side in terms of a certain type of identity politics is a little bit harder to walk back because it does involve people's understanding of basic civil rights. And so it's harder to kind of explain what the problem is. But I do think that that's something that's also not unfixable. Well, you know, I I don't quite want to say that liberalism is dead, but I do think the age of liberalism is dead. And I think our inability to see that is making it harder to face up to the challenge of rescuing liberalism from itself. For instance, you write, while liberal societies agree to disagree about final ends, they cannot survive if they are unable to establish a hierarchy of factual truth. This hierarchy is created by elites of various sorts who act independently of those holding political power. Mm-hmm. That game is over, as far as I can tell. If you're right about that, if you need that kind of infrastructure. That seems dead, and I don't see any way in which it comes back. This society in which there are gatekeepers, in which the stories we're, we tell about ourselves and what's happening are bounded or controlled, a society in which we can converge in any way on baseline reality, that does not seem to be coming back, not after the digital revolution, not when you have trust in institutions, uh, in public institutions, has cratered to the extent that it has. What in the world are we supposed to do about that? Yeah, so that is definitely a huge problem that's created by technology, where you know you have a technology that makes it extremely easy to bypass gatekeepers and That was originally understood to be good for democracy because it would allow ordinary people to have access to much greater amounts of information than previously. And it just unfortunately turned out that a lot of that information was really bad and incorrect or conspiracy-minded or hateful or divisive. That is one of the, the big challenges that we're dealing with. But if you speak specifically about the gatekeepers, I'm not sure that they're all in imminent danger of collapsing. One of the impressive things I thought actually about the way that the last election played itself out was in a court, you're not allowed to just say anything. You can't introduce evidence when you're litigating something, even in a criminal or civil case that you just read on the internet, right? And you cannot violate certain norms of behavior in court where the judge actually has the ability to throw things out and so forth. And that actually worked fairly well. I mean, the Trump acolytes that were trying to disqualify various votes after the election almost universally failed because even Trump-appointed judges wouldn't hear the kind of hearsay evidence that they were trying to introduce. Similarly, in the sciences, The scientific establishment still has norms for what is considered acceptable evidence. The problem is their lower credibility among ordinary people. But the thing about science is it actually produces results, and it actually produces results that eventually people are going to recognize. And so right now, overwhelmingly, the only people dying of COVID are people that haven't been vaccinated. Now, it is kind of amazing to me that Given that record, there still are so many anti-vax people out there. But I do think that at some point, reality is going to start intruding and there will be a kind of reaction that if you say that black is white over and over again, when manifestly it's going to hurt you to think that black is white, then there's going to be an adjustment at some time. So 
I don't know how we're going to cope with this, but I don't think that the answer is just to throw up our hands and say, well, all truth now is relative and we have no common factual basis on which to agree and deliberate any longer. Yeah, I certainly don't recommend that. I don't look at the last few years and draw that sanguine conclusion. <laughs> at this point, I'm not so sure reality does get the last say. The fact that you know, a million people have died from this pandemic and we still really can't even agree whether or not it's real or vaccines work seems to me to suggest that we have sort of crossed the Rubicon a little bit when it comes to epistemic closure or epistemic tribalism. And I should say a, a million Americans, many, many, many more people around the world have, have died from COVID. Yeah, well, there's no question. It's very, it's very frightening, that phenomenon. So there's no answer there, <laughs> right? That's it. I mean, I'm with you. I mean, I, I'm happy to, to hope for the best. Well, look, so I guess the argument in the end for liberalism is the most basic argument is what's the alternative? Yeah. So are you then going to embrace disinformation and say, well, because the credibility of our legacy institutions has been damaged, Let's just throw in the towel and say there is no truth. We're not going to agree about anything. We should dismantle the remaining gatekeepers because we know that we can't do anything. I mean, I'm not quite sure what kind of a world you're going to step into at that point. So I don't think that you've got any choice but to hang on to the, the cognitive points of support that have been developed over the years because the alternatives are much worse. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I guess part of what I'm saying is I, don't, I think the idea that we have a choice at all is a bit of an illusion. I mean, these things are, are happening whether we want them to or not. I think there's a tendency when we're talking about gatekeepers and disinformation and all that to simplify it a little bit too much. Where like we assume some of the resentments and some of the reaction against elites and public institutions is the result of blinkered people being confused by misinformation. Some of that is also people can actually see and hear more, and it's not good. And this actually sort of leads me to one question I did want to ask you before we get out of here, which is, is anything that you've written in this book or anything you've said today feel like a revision to your end of history thesis? And something that you talk about in that book, right? To give you an example, talk about how the class issue has more or less been resolved in the West. And like, obviously, that is not to say that there isn't rich people and poor people and all of that. Mm -hmm. But the point was to say the root causes of the inequalities were not about the fundamental legal and social structure of our society. And those institutions were at their core egalitarian. I'm not sure that was correct then. I, I feel like there's just no question that that's not true today. The underlying legal and social structures are not egalitarian. They're not meritocratic. And that is part of the reason you felt compelled to write this book, mm -hmm. right? And it's one of the many reasons people are disenchanted with the system that we have. Well, I guess my feeling about that is you can see the political obstacles to correcting that and why they're preventing a correction. But yeah. It does seem to me that that option is still out there. And I can imagine a political moment will come when people will take up that challenge and then fix the institutions the way they did during the 1930s after the Great Depression or direct result of the Great Depression. I would say that deeply buried in liberal theory is a belief in human rationality, that ultimately people will be rational if they'll listen to evidence, that they will deliberate and that the result of that deliberation is going to be some socially productive conclusion. I mean, that's why liberals believe in freedom of speech and open deliberation. And modern technology has really challenged that very much. In a way, it's made the debate even more open than it's ever been. But on the other hand, it provides big megaphones and opportunities for amplification of certain views and without regard to the quality of those views. And so I guess probably the biggest disappointment that I've felt in liberal democracy is that simply the fact that that many Americans could vote for somebody like Donald Trump. It just, it always seemed to me that American voters in the end would be more sensible than that. And it does make you wonder whether higher levels of education are necessarily going to lead to 
better outcomes and to a, a more sustainable liberal society. Uh, that's uh, something that I you know worry about a lot. Yeah, I just think that's the completely wrong way to think about it. You know, people who think that you know more education will be the answer. I, it, it's too easy. It's part of what annoyed me with some of the conversations around Trump winning the presidency and this idea that he won just because of racism, for instance. I mean, surely race and racism was a big part of it. It's, it's always a part of American life and American politics. But it was also more than that. There, there needed to be, I think, more introspection among the elites of this country. There needed to be a, a deeper conversation about what the hell went wrong here. Yeah, no, absolutely. How our society produced this much disillusionment that people would rather pull a lever and break the whole damn thing <laughs> rather than be continue to play a game that they felt totally disinvested from. Right. Liberalism has to answer for that failure as well, those failures. No, I think that's right. And a lot of the unhappiness was actually over educated people looking down on people that didn't have their level of education and blaming them for things that really weren't their fault, like being racist and nativist and so forth. I think that's right. So in that sense, the fact that we've divided our society into kind of urban, cosmopolitan, well-educated people and then people that don't share those characteristics has really become characteristic of our politics more broadly. And there's misunderstanding, I think, on both sides. Well, the final pages of your book are a kind of defense of moderation as more than just a political virtue. Mm -hmm. And I think this is maybe the place where you are most conservative. And if I'm being honest, it's also the place where I'm most conservative. I mean, I do see political life as a struggle to live in this tension between inertia and progress. And if it's true that the excesses of liberalism are really just its virtues being fully realized to the point where they become pathological, then we need a course correction so dramatic that it almost feels like a paradigm shift. And I'm not sure we have the intellectual or the moral or the political capital to do that. But I don't know. I suspect that you think maybe we do. Yeah. So I uh, don't put these views forward as a prediction. Yeah. I would simply say that the fundamental argument for liberalism is this pragmatic one, that it's a way of governing societies peacefully that are highly diverse and that people want to live in that kind of liberal society the most when they see what the alternatives are. And so liberalism has gone through these long swings after the wars of religion, and then they're challenged again in the 19th, early 20th centuries by out-of-control nationalism, and people go back to liberal values and institutions having experienced that or having experienced communist dictatorship, they turn to a liberal solution. And then there does seem to be this cycle where people get complacent, they take liberalism for granted, and they once again start aspiring to a higher form of politics. So maybe we are condemned to go through these cycles, but one of the things that gives me some hope is that we have come out of previous cycles like this. You know, the 1930s was pretty bad in terms of illiberal, very radically illiberal views, and the world managed to survive that uh, and restore a liberal order. So hopefully that'll happen again. I mean, do you think the Chinese model represents an ideological challenge to liberal democracy? Oh, yeah, it's definitely. To Soviet communism, and might it prevail, ultimately? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge, and it definitely could prevail. I don't pretend to have any insight into the future. And so if in 30, 40 years it's still growing and it's still stable, and the United States and other democracies are still divided and floundering, you'd have to say, yeah, that is an alternative. I hope that doesn't happen because I actually don't want to live in that kind of society, but it is a possibility that we need to worry about. Well, like I've said a bunch of times here, I still consider myself a liberal. I think I always will be, but it has problems. And I appreciate people like you writing books like this to try to have an honest accounting of, of those failures and at least think about ways to transcend them. Because I think you and I, if we agree on anything, it's probably that there has not yet been a superior alternative to liberal democracy. And so long as that's the case, we should defend it as best we can. Right. Francis Fukuyama, the book is Liberalism and Its Discontents. Thank you so much for the time today. Great. It's been fun talking to you. 
Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Can we improve? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.